Hello and welcome to The Twilight Show with me, Charlie Rizal. Live from Hearn Bay, this is The Twilight Show with Charlie Rizal. Yes, hello and welcome to The Twilight Show with me, Charlie Rizal. As ever, thank you for your company. This week we're discussing the differences across the pond. I'll be chatting to a leader of Denver Academy about the challenges facing schools in the US of A. I'll also be discussing Ofsted, Labour and other news happening this week. Once again, welcome. Live from Hearn Bay, this is The Twilight Show with Charlie Rizal on Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Yes, hello and welcome to The Twilight Show with me, Charlie Rizal. It's really great to be back with you again this Friday. I absolutely love presenting this show to you. I'm really, really excited this week because I have scheduled a really special guest uh, who will be joining us very shortly um, from Denver Academy all the way from Colorado in the United States. I'm really lucky to be able to have uh, booked uh, Philippe for this show this week because he is going to be able to provide us with an insight into the differences between teaching in the United States and to what we know in the United Kingdom. I'm going to be discussing different questions with him in terms of some of the challenges that they face in the US and uh, how they are dealing with coronavirus out in the education system out in the States and really uh, how the system is changing as it as we move forward into the future and I think it will be really quite interesting for us to have a a think about how the system in the United States differs from that in the United Kingdom and actually which one could potentially be better for the future of the Western world. I realise that that's quite a uh, wide ranging uh, set of questions to be asking tonight but I think it's really good for us to be thinking about this and to be really considering how other countries do things Everybody talks about Finland, everyone talks about the different models around the world in terms of education. We in Britain, I think, always assume that we are at the very top of the education system. We are always very much the best of the best. But could we learn from other places? That's what I'm going to be discussing with Philippe today. I'm also going to be discussing some really pressing topics that have been in the news this week about the October half term. A lot of people are now discussing whether more schools should move to having a two-week half term in October. And I'm also going to be discussing the GCSE exam changes because obviously these have been released this week. I, as a head of department, are having uh, am sorry having to get my head around those changes. 
I'm also going to be discussing, quite controversially, of course, the Labour Party conference and what we can expect if Labour were to win power at the next general election in terms of education. My prayers have been answered, Britain. We are now able to hear from the shadow cabinet, from the shadows of what they believe that education would look like under a Labour government. Really quite interesting that one because there's a few things that I was hoping to hear from the official opposition about in terms of education, in terms of uh, staffing. But some things have been a little bit lacklustre, some might say. Some things I was hoping for personally and I know a few of my colleagues were hoping for have been missing. And uh, but it's quite interesting to be able to discuss this because we have also had a little insight into potentially the way in which that Nadim Sahawi may well go down. Of course, Number 10 and the DFE are denying any involvement in this information that has uh, been in the Guardian newspaper about some of you could say, quite worrying developments about how the government are looking to move education forward. So has Labour come up to the task of uh, counteracting the government's education policies? Are the government moving education in the right way? I want to hear your views. I want to hear what you're thinking about all of these things. And we will, of course, be uh, discussing that as we go forward. So yes, I'm really, really pleased to be uh, able to welcome uh, my guest from all the way in Denver, Colorado. Uh, welcome. How are you? Hey, thank you. Thank you very much, Charlie. Pleasure to uh, to be on the podcast with you. No problem at all. I'm really, really excited to be able to speak to you and uh, to be able to get the insight of an educator all the way over in the States. But what we are going to do, first of all, we're going to go to the news for today and uh, I will be back after this. This is Teachers Talk Radio and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. This is your latest Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. In Scotland, from the 20th of September, all staff working in schools will be able to access a toolkit of LGBTQ plus inclusive teaching resources and will have to complete a basic awareness course. LGBTQ plus history and topics will now be taught and integrated into everyday learning, making Scotland the first country in the world to make this mandatory. John Swinney, Deputy First Minister, praised the changes when they were confirmed earlier in the year, saying, Scotland is already considered one of the most progressive countries in Europe for LGBTQ plus equality. Schools in Norfolk have been impacted by the ongoing fuel crisis 
with some fearing the return to online lessons. Some children who rely on special school transport arrangements have been unable to get to class. A Norfolk County Council spokesperson said, We are aware of a very few incidences where taxi drivers providing home to school transport have not been able to get fuel and are doing all we can to ensure that suitable transport remains in place. School buses have been unaffected so far, but there are 13,000 pupils in Norfolk who are eligible for funded transport to school. Former local head Jeff Barton, now General Secretary of the ASCL Head Teachers Union said, the last thing schools need is the added pressure of fuel shortages with the potential for this to mean that staff, pupils and suppliers are unable to get to school. Yes, hello and welcome back to The Twilight Show with me, Charlie Rizal. I'm really pleased to be able to welcome Philippe to my show this evening and uh, we're going to begin our conversation now. So, Philippe, how's the weather out in my favourite place in the world, Denver, Colorado? Seasons are changing a bit, you know, with uh, the turn of the calendar here for October. There's a crispness in the air for sure. Oh, beautiful. So a nice sunny day then. Yeah, blue sky for sure. Don't tell anybody. <laughs> oh, do you, know, do you know what? We have had a uh, quite a rainy day here in uh, East Kent, and uh, I'm hoping it's going to bright up uh, this evening because I would like to go on my walk tonight because I have had uh, quite a lot of uh, sweet treats today, and I do need to uh, walk off those calories. Um, but uh, so we'll we'll start off then, Philippe, and I, I'd just like to ask you first of all whether you could give me a little bit of background to you and how you fell into education. Yeah, sure. Thanks for asking. I'm the director of education at the Denver Academy, which is an independent uh, private school in Denver, Colorado. And I started my path in teaching uh, 27 years ago uh, with an uh, organization called Teach for America, uh, places teachers in uh, needy, under-resourced areas, and started there, kind of like a, a domestic Peace Corps here in the United States. And, and during that time, you know, discovered this school uh, in Denver um, that I really wanted to be part of uh, because it really seemed to fit both with my, my soul and my role and what I wanted to do. And that is uh, really impact the lives of uh, diverse learners, you know, kind of those students that um, are often described as non-traditional learners. They may have uh, diagnoses like dyslexia, uh, sensory integration, attentional issues. And, uh, and that, that, that's how it started, Charlie. Amazing. So you you work with a lot of students that in in Britain we would know as having what we call uh, SEND, special educational needs or disability. And it's really quite interesting to hear um, as we go through the show today how uh, the the model that your school follows in order to support those learners and whether that really differs to how we do things in this country. So um, in terms of the diversity that you see in your school, what what do you have? I mean, do you have lots of learners with uh, ASD, with, uh, you, you've mentioned dyslexia, but things like uh, autism, ADHD, um, ODD, are those the things that you sort of see? 
Yeah, you know, I mean, the general population, right, the occurrence of these learning differences and attentional issues is about one in five. And then, uh, of course, then at the Denver Academy, uh, not all of our students have these diagnoses, but uh, dyslexia, for example, is over 50% of our students at last count. You know, autism spectrum is maybe one in 10. Um, and we really just look at our kids as, you know, creative, innovative um, that often just weren't fitting in in other places. And that's kind of, you know, why they come to us. We also have many students who simply... Um, need more time uh, to do things, maybe need to have a different curriculum, a different set of expectations that have absolutely no diagnosis whatsoever. Because, you know, at the root of diagnosis is, I think, this misguided lens of normal sometimes, right, mm -hmm. that we're looking at kids through. Uh, we, don't want, we don't want to pathologize learning, right? Sometimes it's called a, it's called a learning a disability, Charlie, and I think it should maybe be called a, a teaching disability. <laughs> mm, absolutely. And it's really interesting because you you see the ability really that a lot of these learners have sometimes completely outstrips those that you would hyper, you know, in inverted commas, call normal learners. Mm -hmm. And really, we need to be in a situation in education where we are in an inclusive of everyone and to be able to support everyone's needs. And I think that this is something when I've done lots of research into Denver Academy and obviously I've spoken to uh, another colleague of yours quite uh, quite at length, actually, about some of the amazing things that you do at your school. It is fascinating, listeners. If you go online and have a look at the Denver Academy website to look at some of the alumni and the amazing things that they do, please do, because I think that in many ways, our schools in this country could learn quite a lot from what they do. So in terms of the character of your school, Philippe, what is the setting like, the overarching aims, the ethos that you follow and the community that you serve? Could you give me a little bit of insight about that? Yeah, and I think you've already, you know, used some of the, the key words there, just this idea of inclusivity. You know, we have 400 students on an amazing 22-acre campus. And, uh, I mean, I really like this sense of this ethos, right? Like, what are our ethics? I mean, our ethics have to do with respect and responsibility and really honoring and understanding the readiness level, the interests, and, and the, the learning profiles of each of our students, uh, and again, I, I frame that as I'm very fortunate and lucky. I have 400 students on campus that I'm responsible for. And, uh, and we really, you know, aim at, at that goal is under, understanding and honoring, you know, their readiness level. Where are they? And, uh, and then really building a curriculum around that. Absolutely. And I think in terms of, um, I, I've been to Denver, um, I think, what, three times in my life. And I've seen the community very much around uh, your your locality in that school. I have actually driven past your school and the the grounds and the, the size of the school itself is absolutely just huge. I mean, the, the schools mm. that we have here, um, they are generally on quite small plots. You have a uh, like what you would probably um, know as a sports field outside uh, with some outbuildings now and again for different things. And I mean, the facilities that you've got there to support your students is second to none. W what would be your proudest facility in your school to support your your learners? I mean, it is, you know, I think in this 
technological age, right? In this information age that we're living in, I think the piece that I'm most proud of is I think we can really balance the the nature touch points, right? The human touch points. Mm-hmm. We're on computers in front of our screens so often. Uh, it's a one-to-one environment. Our students definitely have the technology uh, using uh, you know everything from Chromebooks to laptops, or, or really from grades one through twelve. But then you know, as has been written about as early as 1982. And uh, I think it was Nesbeth's um, megatrends, right? This idea for every tech touch point, there needs to be a high human, high nature touch point to balance it out, to kind of, you know, keep the, the mental health healthy. And I'd say that it's that it's access to outside. And it's funny because, I mean, in the time of, of coronavirus, if there can be, you know, any silver lining, um, we've been outside more than ever. We have tents set up for, you know, most of our classrooms. Uh, have access to tents outside. And so that's become just much more uh, normalized. Uh, you know, to, to have class outside is uh, kind of used to be uncommon. And now it's probably happening, uh, you know, more than ever. And how have your students adapted to uh, to learning outside, outside of their normal their normality? I mean, because I know that a lot of students that uh, in this country that have got SEN require lots of very, very uh, structured, um, you know, days. They need to know what they're doing, when they're doing it. How have your students adapted to it? All right. And I think we started with teacher training around this. You know, what are our rules, expectations and procedures going to be? And and some of our fear, honestly, Charlie, was like squirrel, you know, like squirrel over there, you know, and and we thought distractibility would be high. Um, but we, but you know, we have implemented everything for just having a simple whiteboard outside to track the structure. Like, here's the agenda. This is the halfway point. These are the expectations. And then again, every classroom, uh, 34 homerooms on campus. I mean, each of these homerooms, they have a physical bricks and mortar homeroom still to be part of. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so sometimes the classes might start there and then move outside, right? So they're getting that direct instruction. Uh, the anticipatory set, here are the expectations, review, and then more of the Socratic processing Q&A partners are happening outside where we can be without masks, you know, where we can be. In, and now it's funny, uh, a school supply, Charlie, is uh, our uh, camping chairs. <laughs> you know? Wow. That's, that, that has become a school supply. So I've become quite a connoisseur on, on camping chairs. We could talk about that offline. <laughs> Well, that that that's perfect because you are in one of the most uh, outdoorsy areas in the United States, so close to the Rocky Mountains and some amazing scenery. I mean, I can remember the last time that I visited before the pandemic. My uh, cousin w- was fantastic, as as she always is, and uh, we met my my uh, her son, also my cousin, I suppose, and um, we went off into Vale and went to some amazing places to go fly fishing. That's what it's all about in America, isn't it? The outdoors life as and when you can. Yeah, no, for sure. And incorporating that then, you know, also getting into a topic of conversation just yesterday was what are we doing with, you know, our, our waste? We have a lot of food delivered around lunchtime. And I think, you know, there is a, a, a new lens on that, you know, because we're seeing it. We're seeing the pizza boxes, right? We're seeing the waste. And so actually we're investing the kids in helping to solve this problem. Um, uh, yeah. 
Yeah, and that's that's what we need to do in terms of building these global citizens for the future is making them really appreciate the outside and really appreciate the world that they live in. And mm-hmm. I'm hoping that this is what we're going to be able to do globally now. Mm-hmm. Um, so you've given me some examples of challenges that you faced at your school during coronavirus and moving your learning outside and, and getting yourself some camp chairs there as well. I mean, what what other challenges have you faced during coronavirus? I mean, because we went to remote learning. We had uh, times when we uh, had staff going into school only looking after the students of key workers. So people that work for our health system and the police and all of these. I mean, we, we've had lots of challenges over in this country and that have been met, really, I think most people would agree, by the people themselves more so than the government at times. So what, what have have you uh, found over in the States? You know, I mean, Charlie, I think the the top two that come to mind, and, and they're really both invisible, you know, um, and that would be one of uh, mental health, you know, just being remote at times. And we were off campus uh, occasionally. We were on campus more than, than not. But just this idea of the isolation that can happen, right, when we did have to go to remote, um, you know, because, uh, you know, because the state told us to or because there was an outbreak, and so making sure that those mental health issues are taken care of. And then the other part has to do with executive functioning. You know, this idea is a very big focus of our school. Um, the idea, you know, the frontal lobe, how are you remembering, checking, organizing, prioritizing. And the last part of executive function is often shifting, right? This idea of shifting everything from kind of your math class to your reading class, from being a son or a daughter to being, you know, a friend or an athlete on the field. And so when you think about the shifting, expectations and requirements of going from home, being on the computer to being back in the classroom, you know, sitting near others with a a live in the flesh teacher in front of you. I've noticed that's been a tremendous challenge uh, where the kids will go to Google a little bit too often to answer the question, you know, Mm -hmm. and I think a little bit of this shifting, like what are the habits of learning that we have learned uh, and maybe need to unlearn in our isolation, you know, when there wasn't maybe an adult or an instructional leader, uh, you know, doing some of that redirection. I think that's been the pulse of the teachers that, you know, I'm supporting and talking to. That's what we're noticing is what might need to be unlearned um, with all this, the, the shifting that's going on. Yeah. And and it's like the I was talking to a head teacher last week on here and they were saying that one of the challenges that they have really faced is returning to the old normal and re-establishing normality with students. And mm-hmm. I mean, it's going to be quite a challenge, I think, going forward, because in this country, there, there's talk at the moment that they might bring in a mobile phone ban on a national level in schools. Mm. And really, I think in many ways, that's going to be a struggle because students not only are so used to being on their phones all the time anyway for social media and for whatever else they're doing, but also that would have supported them in their learning as well. So you've Mm -hmm. got that argument of, well, it was all right for them to use them when they were learning remotely. So therefore, why can they not be used in the classroom? A lot of schools have it written into their policies that students can use mobile phones in the classroom for education. But it is sometimes very uh, counterproductive having them in the classroom. We've all got experience of that. 
But I completely understand what you're saying there about the challenges of moving back to the old normal. So before we go to our first ad break, what do you, other other than what you've already alluded to, what are your other challenges that you think you're going to face as you move forward, as we move back into the old normal, but over time? Yeah, I mean, I, a little bit of the unlearning that I talked about, and then also, you know, making sure that the students have opportunity, um, maybe that they've tasted, you know, now uh, through different digital platforms or different things that they can study, like what could um, some of the silver lining be? I think the challenges moving forward would be, okay, I get the curriculum. I know what is expected, but I also learned about this other thing, right? I learned about this software or, or, or this coding that I'm interested in now. You know, I think those are going to be some of the challenges, like how can we uh, individualize and differentiate going forward while still making sure our students have the core knowledge, you know, uh, to foundational knowledge to be able to, you know, be productive citizens in the world. Mm. And do you think that your students appreciate being back at school? Oh, you know, I just got goosebumps, Charlie, because it is palpable on campus. They are so happy to be there. Um, they will remind each other of mask wearing, of distancing, of, you know, washing hands, all the safety and safety protocols we still have in place. We had a pep rally yesterday and it was the most extraordinary pep rally we've ever had. I've been at the school for 25 years. It was, it was joyous. It was, and I knew at that moment it was, yes, it was about our athletics and our theater and our arts department, but we were also all just celebrating, you know, being back on campus. It was, it was pretty awesome. I think that the students are very appreciative. Fantastic. That is so lovely to hear because, I mean, I think when we look at uh, schools in America from a British perspective, I think when I look at them and uh, like you see them on lots of TV programmes, especially Netflix, there's many things that I've watched recently. And I think they, they always look like such really close-knit, community-based family places where, yes, you might fall out at times, uh, but actually everyone comes together and it's a really massive community. And it always looks so positive and fun in American schools. I would love to actually come and visit one one day. And really, I'd love to come and watch a football game. I really would love to do that and uh, watch a, a baseball game at some point. Um, so thank you, Philippe. That brings me to the end of our first half of this interview. And before I go to the ads, I just want to say a very warm welcome to everybody that is joining us this evening. Uh, I've got Catherine from... Uh, uh, Essex in England, a very warm welcome to you. Uh, Susie, again, lovely having you with us once again. Roger's History, hello there. Uh, many, many more of you. So thank you for joining us tonight. And obviously, if you would love to put in your uh, two pence, if you would like to send in your comments or your questions, if you've got anything to ask Philippe yourself about the American education system, you can, of course, speak to me on here. Or you can use my Twitter handle to tweet me at Mr. Razdaz. We will be back after the ads. Need support with your phonics teaching? Did you know Oxford University Press now has three DFE validated programmes to help you? Read Write Ink Phonics, Floppies Phonics and the brand new Essential Letters and Sounds. Essential Letters and Sounds will get all your children reading well, quickly, using phonics books you may already have in your classroom. 
Developed by the Knowledge Schools Trust English Hub, it's affordable, easy to use and makes teaching phonics with letters and sounds more effective. Whatever your school's phonics needs, Oxford has the solution. To find out more and receive support from your expert local educational consultant, visit oxfordprimary.com forward slash phonics. Hello everyone and welcome to the History Hotline, the hottest line for all things black history and beyond. I'm your host, Diana Lynn Cook, making space for honest conversations about black British, Caribbean and African history. Here to teach you all the things left out of your school books. Make sure you subscribe to the History Hotline on all good podcast platforms. Follow us on social media at the History Hotline on Instagram and at the History HL on Twitter to find out about new upcoming episodes. Do you struggle with people-pleasing? Is it a constant battle managing different and difficult personalities? Why not inspire, challenge and empower your team through the Mal CPD Essential Coaching Skills for School Leaders course? Or gain practical skills to become a strong and compassionate leader through the assertive leadership and the emotionally intelligent leader courses? All Mal CPD courses are accredited by the Institute of Leadership and Management. Find out more at www.malcpd.com. Yes, hello and welcome back to uh, The Twilight Show with me, uh, Charlie Rizel. I'm really lucky to be able to be joined by Philippe from Denver Academy, all the way from the good old US of A. Welcome back, Philippe. Thank you very much. No problem at all. And actually, uh, you've just written a brilliant uh, little comment in the section here uh, for uh, people to learn more about Denver Academy. If you visit www.denveracademy.org, you'll be able to see some of the amazing things that they do there. So, Philippe, um, we've got lots of changes uh, happening in education in the United Kingdom. We've got lots of um, forthcoming um different uh, potential issues that may arise, if I can put it that way. We've just had a new Secretary of State for Education uh, take over from Gavin Williamson and uh, the official opposition has just had their party conference. And there's lots of debate going on now. And what I'd like to know is what the challenges are going forward in generally in the United States, to fulfil the needs of the future globalised world in terms of your students and education? Yeah, I mean, that's a heavy, heavy question. I, 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 I think part of it is, you know, uh, many, will, many would say that we've moved kind of from this in, you know, industrial economy to an information economy. Um, and, and I think that there's a mistake there. Uh, I, I don't think it's either or. Right. I think it needs to be both like we really need to have, you know, both pieces in place. Yes, obviously informational computer age. Um, but but what do apprenticeships look like? You know, what does the, the latest and greatest in green farming, you know, in ecological, you know, food production uh, look like? Where where are those seeds pun intended? Maybe um, right. Where, where are those seeds being planted? And so I think those are the biggest challenging, uh, but the, the biggest challenge moving forward be a, to try to find a balance. Uh, but between those two things um, and to make sure the opportunity is there, you know, for 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 both, for students to be able to really pursue both. I think that's really interesting. And we share quite a common theme there between our two countries, because 
in this country, there has been such a push for students to go on to university and uh, to get degrees. I mean, uh, that that has been the case since uh, Tony Blair's government from about 1997 uh, until 2010. There was lots of push for students to go to university. And what we've now found is that our economy is lacking lots of skills. So the government are now trying to prioritise uh, pushing people towards apprenticeships, but then you've got lots of people saying oh no that's 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 not a good idea you're taking away the opportunity for people from working class backgrounds to go to university to get a degree so i can see the positives and negatives of both sides but i think you're right when you say in the western world we do need to have a a, a fine balance between skills and knowledge and being able to be productive and and quite uh, useful people to the economy as people leave education and that's really interesting because you when you think of apprenticeships in this country you never really know how any other country does it and whether they're more successful than us what what is the apprenticeship uptake like in denver you know, and I've, I've thought about this, I've been thinking about this a lot, because I think a lot of times what I'm noticing, to speak from the Denver Academy, is it's student and family initiated, right? It might be an internship at a museum, or a family knows somebody, or, or a neighbor. And then when I think about, um, I grew up in Belgium, uh, and so I know a bit about that educational system, and also Germany, it, it seems to be much more like it is in the system, Right. It is already, you know, might take a test at age 14 or 15 and then that kind of might, you know, carve a path for you. I think in Denver, I'm just noticing it as much more, you know, kind of parent student initiated. And and that's where, you know, at Denver Academy, we want to partner uh, around that. But I'm also what you're making me think about, Charlie, is how could that be in a more part of our system? Right. It shouldn't. How can we create these opportunities, these internships? Um and so just kind of a systems, you know, versus non-systems approach there. Mm. And I mean, that again, it, there seems to be very similar challenges in terms of that, because we I, I had a very, very interesting conversation last week about uh, something called Skills for Life, that a, a school is pioneering uh, in Kent, very, very close to where I am. And it's about building those soft skills into the curriculum, into the system in the everyday culture of that school in order mm -hmm. to make students employable and to make them ready for the world outside of education. And really, maybe that is what we're needing uh, across uh, our economies because we both the united kingdom and the united states were were very very big industrial powerhouses at one time but now we are moving towards this information and service sector based economy so we need to have these new skills so how um do you sort of prioritize the needs of your learners we've spoken about uh, the the needs that they have how do you go about prioritizing those needs? You know, this, this I really think is, is Denver Academy's bread and butter, and it's why I'm at the Denver Academy. Um, we really do look at every student individually. So what is unique at our school is students come in with an educational psychological evaluation, right? Mm -hmm. So what that means is we know what their current achievement scores are, and that's not uncommon. What is uncommon is we also get data points from something, something called uh, the Woodcock-Johnson um, 
achievement and cognitive tests and also the Wexler intelligence test. So we have these, you know, these data points that don't just tell us their IQ score, but also the five subcategories and the tests that, you know, inform um, what the bandwidth should be, right? Kind of what the aptitude markers are of that student. And, and that's extremely helpful, right? Because that really gets us to what truly is their, their readiness level. We maintain high expectations, um, but it's having those data points. A few other schools I've visited around the world you know, have that as well. But I, I think that's where we start, Charlie. And that's a, often when I talk about this, I have to be careful um, because it, it is pretty, it's pretty complex. Um, it's, it's where we have you know, 150 hours of training for our teachers you know, every year. And a lot of the time, those 150 hours are spent on, you know, what I just shared with you, right? Yeah. It's in building, is in building these, these learning profiles, not just looking at the label they came in with, mm-hmm. but really understanding like, what is their capacity? What's their ability? What's their interest? And where do they need the strategies, right? Like, where are they breaking down? Um, and, and then, and, 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 you know, that, 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 that as the entry point, uh, really to, to building curriculum and placement and scaffolding and supports in the classroom. Mm. That's really interesting because we have, uh, as I said to you, we, we call it SEN in this country and we have uh, things in, in where I work called strategy sheets where we're able to uh, provide um a breakdown really of how to support learners with additional needs in our classrooms and we also are provided with CPD about uh, these students that need extra support and how to do that and how to scaffold and how to differentiate Mm -hmm. correctly so that's Mm -hmm. quite a similarity there Uh, I just want to say hello to Jack who's listening from Kent I, I'm I'm talking to you from Kent, so uh, a nice local there. Um, that's really 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 interesting, Philippe. And um, there, there seems to be a lot of similarities, as I say. Um, now I've got I've got a question here about curriculum, uh, but I'm also quite interested to know um, number one whether you follow a national curriculum model uh, set out by central government and whether you follow a blocked curriculum model whether you follow a spiraled curriculum model mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How, how do you how do you deliver your curriculum yeah I mean when, when I think about curriculum um, and uh, I am the that's one of my responsibilities is to meet we have academic content chairs for you know each of our our content areas. And I think about the root of that word, right? Curriculum is the course to be run. So it's almost like what you decide to do before the students show up. And curriculum at Denver Academy is three parts. I mean, part one is exactly what you're talking about. We do pay attention to Colorado Department education standards, which are very closely aligned with national standards. And, and, you know, those, um, um, those objectives and those standards come from the, the respective national councils of English, math, science, social studies. But I think the two other pieces of curriculum is we honor the curriculum that comes in with a teacher. Uh, so there's a certain teacher autonomy, right, that we also trust to make, you know, game day decisions, right? Game day decisions, depending on everything from the mood, um, you know, to the, the bandwidth that day in the classroom. Uh, and then, uh, but then number three, and I'll get back to the rigidity here, which would be uh, to make sure that there is a scope and sequence, right? So we're documenting these things in the individual learning profile so the teachers know, hey, this student was able to achieve uh, this, these markers at this year so they know where to start the next year. So I think spiraling is very accurate. You know, we, we look at, at, at again, kind of um, 
this idea of a band of expectations, right? So sometimes like with algebra, boy, end of algebra is definitely the quadratic equation, but we're going to start that next year and maybe even the year afterwards by going back to the quadratic equation, not assuming that, you know, one touch point or one test, one point of mastery meant mastered forever. We're definitely spiraling, spending 10 minutes out of every hour we have with students you know, to do exactly that, which is review, right? If you don't review it, you'll lose it. And so to make sure those pieces are, are, are built in. Um, I hope that answers the question. I could yes. talk about curriculum for hours. It's oh, just, I, I, you know. I love curriculum. I love <laughs> curriculum. And uh, it, it's so interesting to talk about that because uh, lot, lots of us have been reviewing our curriculums over here and really trying to build them towards what we're, what we're knowing as spiral curriculums and ensuring that we're really building in that constant recall, that constant uh, recapping of knowledge to ensure that students are, are really fully understanding those key concepts that's again a, a very large similarity there and I'm this one I'm really interested in because when I've done my research into what is taught in America uh, geography does not seem to be on the curriculum as a standalone subject and I'm very very upset about that uh, however um, it seems to come under social sciences and I'm, I'm really quite interested what is the 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 most popular social science in your school? Yeah, I mean, we have just amazing and engaging uh, history teachers, right? So in our social studies department, I mean, you know, history um, and really bringing that alive, obviously going back, you know, to the ancient Greeks to, you know, landing on the moon. I mean, that is, um, and then in civics, I mean, most recently the move in the United States um, you know, for, for, I think for obvious reasons, for everything from, you know, the, the social unrest and really just everything becoming very current. I mean, almost feeling like a new civil rights movement here in the United States. But I think there's renewed interest in, in a new, a renewed interest in civics. And what I'm most excited about, I just heard this yesterday, it's our teachers, you know, going back to some of those court cases and really examining, you know, what was the Civil Rights Act? What was Brown versus the Board of Education? And really, I think that is, again, silver lining, some good things that are coming out of, you know, the current events of the last year. Charlie, I think those are the most popular items. And many curriculums are being built, you know, kind of around these uh, court cases. There's a very famous curriculum out there called Democracy in America. And it's based on, you know, the individual court cases and the students study the cases and, under, and kind of learn history really from part right, from one individual case, you know, to then understanding a better sense of the whole. Mm. And that's uh, all of these situations that we've had going on around the world, especially the um, the, the absolutely awful uh, event that happened with uh, George Floyd. And mm. we, we've been discussing that a lot in this country, and there's been so much happening around that. And there's been lots of talk about adapting the curriculum over in this country to reflect um, all of these um, atrocities that take place. And I think in many ways, there's a real opportunity now for curriculum review um, and to make sure that we're reflective of the needs of society in today's world, but also being very clear about our history. And I think we've got to be very, very, very careful to make sure that history is still taught correctly and mm -hmm. not to just wipe out history because it th there may be a uh, somebody that might get a little bit upset about something 
because actually, do you know what? These events have happened. The hard reality is these events have happened and we need to learn from them in order to do better in the future. And I think that that is something that we've got to uh, really think about, especially uh, in our our nations. So in this country, workload and well-being is a huge challenge. It's always in the news in terms of teaching and education. What uh, is the situation in America? Because I, I hear a lot that all oh, teachers have to work more than two jobs. A teacher will go from school straight to working in a shop and then to a bar in the evening just to make mm -hmm. ends meet. What is the situation like in the States? Yeah, I mean, in the United States, I think that that's definitely, you know, teachers still, uh, generally speaking, are, are underpaid. Uh, at the Denver Academy, our head of school has done a great job, I mean, of just, just making it a priority, you know, that ultimately to take care of teachers, they need to be compensated, um, you know, well, and really following the, the, the mantra, you know, of somebody I follow, actually, in the business world, but Daniel Pink has written a number of books around motivation and drive, and he talks about, you know, making sure teachers are paid enough so that money's not an issue, right? To kind of try to take the, the, the money off the table. And I think generally we've been able to do that. Uh, it's obviously been a multi-year process, you know, making sure there's those new teachers to recruit new teachers. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a tremendous a challenge for sure. Um, uh, the well-being of our teachers at any time, but, but especially right now. Absolutely. And moving on from the coronavirus situation, mm -hmm. mental health is such a huge priority for, uh, I think, educationalists and hopefully the governments as well. But we will wait and see on that one. But um, so what do you uh, I'll be interested to know uh, what you know about the British education system and whether there's anything that you would like to see imported from Britain to the United States? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that um, I, I think uh, offering this idea of, of apprenticeships, right, again, kind of getting back to what I shared earlier, but having that be part of uh, the system, right, that it shouldn't just be an individual student or family, but how could we create, um, because I, I think, you know, and again, my, my, my focus, uh, doing some growing up in Belgium and Germany, I just remember there being tests, you know, kind of at age 12 and 14. And I might have some reservations around that. That might be a pretty early time, you know, to set your course for the next uh, for the next 20 or 30 years. But to at least have those doors open so students could could choose that. You know, I kind of think about how can we bring Shakespeare into the welding studio? Right. It doesn't okay. have to be either or. Right. It doesn't have to yeah. be one or the other. But yeah. what could apprenticeships look like? Amazing. And that maybe that's uh, something that our, that our governments could potentially work together along the side of uh, this new thing called AUKUS, which I'm still trying to get my head around. Uh, but uh, we will hope that that happens. But listen, thank you so, so much for joining me this evening. I think that everybody that's listened has had a really amazing insight into what your school's all about, the challenges faced in America in terms of education and uh, your your background. I mean, experience in Belgium, in Germany. What a brilliant uh, experience you've had as well. So I hope to be able to invite you on here again. Charlie, look forward to hosting you at the Denver Academy next time in the United States. Oh, I, sh I absolutely would love that. Thank you so much. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. 
So there we go. That uh, was an amazing interview there of uh, Philippe from the Denver Academy in Colorado in the United States, one of my all-time favourite places to visit in the world. Everyone who knows me knows that I am slightly obsessed with North America. I love visiting the United States. I love visiting Canada. Uh, I I just think they are something completely amazing. And uh, I wish everyone listening, especially... uh, Uh, Aaron, who has messaged in saying he's listening from Virginia in the United States, a very, very uh, lovely afternoon as you are just turning past lunchtime over in the States. So thank you to everybody listening over in the States. Uh, I would also like to say a very warm uh, welcome to Dave Petz, TSCW, uh, Jack from Kent, Catherine from Essex, Susie and Rogers History, um, who have messaged on here to say that they are listening. A very, very uh, warm welcome to my show and obviously to the weekend. I'll be back after this. Need support with your phonics teaching? Did you know Oxford University Press now has three DfE-validated programmes to help you? Read Write Ink Phonics, Floppies Phonics, and the brand new Essential Letters and Sounds. Essential Letters and Sounds will get all your children reading well, quickly, using phonics books you may already have in your classroom. Developed by the Knowledge Schools Trust English Hub, it's affordable, easy to use, and makes teaching phonics with letters and sounds more effective. Whatever your school's phonics needs, Oxford has the solution. To find out more and receive support from your expert local educational consultant, visit oxfordprimary.com forward slash phonics. Hello everyone and welcome to the History Hotline, the hottest line for all things black history and beyond. I'm your host, Deanna Lynn Cook, making space for honest conversations about black British, Caribbean and African history. Here to teach you all the things left out of your school books. Make sure you subscribe to the History Hotline on all good podcast platforms. Follow us on social media at the History Hotline on Instagram and at the History HL on Twitter to find out about new upcoming episodes. Do you struggle with people pleasing? Is it a constant battle managing different and difficult personalities? Why not inspire, challenge and empower your team through the Mal CPD Essential Coaching Skills for School Leaders course or gain practical skills to become a strong and compassionate leader through the assertive leadership and the emotionally intelligent leader courses. All Mal CPD courses are accredited by the Institute of Leadership and Management. Find out more at www.malcpd.com. Yes, hello and welcome back to The Twilight Show with me, Charlie Brazil. We've had a really brilliant start to the show today because we've been speaking to a director of learning at Denver Academy in Colorado about the challenges faced in the United States in terms of education, teacher workload and how they have moved outside of the new normal back into the old normal and uh, quite frankly I love that they have been investing in camping chairs because I would love to be able to uh, go camping back in Denver I miss that place so much and I really hope to be able to get back out there very soon and uh, I must say a very very Big thank you to Joe Biden for removing the travel uh, restrictions to the United States, because I tell you what, I will be back out there as quick as I possibly can. So 
Now I just want to uh, talk about the October half term. Now, over the past few years, many academies have chosen to uh, move towards a two-week half term in October. Now, this has meant that they've obviously had to... Um, start back a little bit earlier uh, instead of the 1st or 3rd of September, starting back in late August. I would say that I am a huge fan of the two-week half term. Quite frankly, the reason for that is because I think that it allows for teachers to have a good break after that really exhausting first term back. And I think we can all agree that when we've gone back after the summer holiday, everybody is shattered. I mean, we're loving being back. Don't get me wrong. I love it. I love being back in my classroom. I love being back with my students, having laughter, having fun, obviously uh, imparting knowledge and getting the learning going in there as well. Uh, but we do get to that point of we need to just shut off for a while and enjoy that half term. And I think sometimes that two week half term is placed really, really well, because October is, it's needed to have that time off. And I'm not going to lie to you. I've booked a little holiday. I am, am going to Fuerteventura uh, during the October half term, one of my all time favourite places. I, I keep saying that, don't I? That, oh, that's my favourite place. That's my favourite place. It's my favourite place in the Canary Islands, put it that way. I'm not really a fan of uh, Grand Canaria because of all the cockroaches that are there. Um, and uh, I, I just, I'm looking forward to having that seven days laying on a sun lounger under that sun. Yes, it will be about 25 degrees. I'm kind of hoping for a little heat wave. Uh, but just to chill out and forget about everything and to just, just exist. That's really important during a half term really important for your well-being, really important for your state of mind and your own health, I think, in order to just do nothing. That's what half terms are made for. So you tell me, what do you think? If you'd like to communicate with me, get involved in the conversation, you can, of course, tweet me at Mr. Raz Daz. You can also give me a little call on here. I've got to many, many people that are uh, listening on a weekly basis to my show. And I would just like to thank you for coming along once again. So uh, if you would like to give me your views on a two-week October half term, I would love to hear them. Do you think that we should have a two-week half term or do you think we should just leave it at the one week? I know that some people, as soon as they see, oh, they've got to go back to uh, work on the 31st of August, just seeing that August in that date can just be like, oh, no, because you're just so used to going back in September. It kind of makes you think, oh, I'm, I'm getting less of a summer holiday. But actually, you're not receiving less of a holiday because you're you're having the same amount. It's just at a different time. So what do you think? Do you think it's good for your students to have the two week half term? Get involved in the conversation because I would really love to hear your views. Potentially, you might be listening and you're a parent. Maybe you are thinking, actually, do you know what? Sometimes having that extended half term break is better having the two weeks then instead of the full six weeks in the summer holiday because it's better for your child care. Potentially, you might be a teacher with a child who prefers to have uh, less of a six week uh, uh and having more of a two-week half term. What do you think? If you'd like to call in, if you'd like to just drop a message, or you can tweet me at Mr. Razdaz. 
So, um, I would just like to now move on and just talk a little bit to you about the uh, GCSE exam changes. Now, oh, what's going to happen this year? We've had the algorithm in the first COVID lockdown. We had the tags last year. And now, apparently, we are going to be doing everything normally. We're going back to exams in the hall. We're going to uh, apparently see content reductions. We're going to see sections of exam papers optional. The government are apparently going to be allowing exam boards to release help sheets to support our students. So really, apart from a few tweaks around the edges, we are returning to normal public examinations. Well, I don't know how I really feel about that because, let's face it, our students have lost a lot of time in the classroom. Yes, they have been provided with remote learning. Yes, many, many teachers, many schools, including myself, have been working tirelessly to catch these students up to fill the gaps in of lost learning. But is it really fair? Is it fair on those students to be going back to exams, to be potentially bringing back those performance tables, when actually these students have lost a lot of time out of their education? I think many teachers will have quite strong views on this and will really, quite frankly, uh, be thinking that uh, potentially the exams should be scrapped again this year. Um, is it right to be examining these students that have had a lot of time outside of education? Let's face it, many students didn't have uh, access to technology. But of course, of course, the government once again know best. So I would uh, argue, actually, that I think we should see a uh, repeat of the tag process. So we, we got it down to a T at my school. We uh, absolutely, uh, we smashed it, I think. I think the structures that heads of department put in place, I know that as I was leading uh, my geography team through the tag process, we absolutely came together as a team and we enabled our students to gain the best possible chance of a grade that they deserved. And quite frankly, I think that the tags have a place in the education system. I think that coursework and written assessment prior to exams, uh, or in place of exams, I might add, have a much greater place in education than many people in the government would, uh, or even some other uh, teachers may even uh, say that they should be. Now, I do think, however, that there is a place for exams. I do think that you should have some form of exams, but I don't think that this year is the right time for it. Now, I would be, um, well, quite frankly, I hope that the government um, really does think about this very carefully and starts to speak to teachers, to speak to the people that are actually in the classrooms on a daily basis and see the impact of the pandemic on our students and speak to us, please. Nadim Zahawi, Secretary of State for Education, the new Secretary of State for Education, my plea to you, 
from this radio show is to speak to us. We are the people with the knowledge of what has gone on. You are going to be able to see the results that students get anyway. So what is the point in performance tables, please? And uh, can we please have a little look at uh, really whether we should be doing exams this year? Um, now, thank you. Um, uh, to uh, my guest tonight, who has just written me a lovely little note here, uh, saying that he was honoured to be part of the conversation. And uh, he's invited me uh, to Denver and says that I've got a, a camping chair ready and waiting for me. Well, thank you so, so much, Philippe. I really appreciate that. Now, Catherine, you've just tried to call in. So I'm going to try to call you and invite you back as a speaker. Um, so let's see if we can uh, get you uh, get you talking. talking. Hello, Hello Catherine. Catherine. Hello. Hello. Uh, you tried to call in. What would you like to say? Yes, just um, I completely agree with you about the exams. Um, I'm a I'm not teaching at the moment, but I have been in teaching for 20 years. I completely agree. Children who've been out of education, had the whole disruption, should not be being put through the normal cycle of exams. It doesn't make sense. But the problem is the people who decide what happens don't listen to teachers, it seems to me. Do you think that the government ever really take into account what the professionals and the experts have got to say in terms of education? If they do, it's always too little, too late. And unfortunately, when they decide who's a Minister for Education, they never seem to have people who've had any expert experience at all, which would um, seem to be a reason for them to be in that position. So that's a very sad thing. The other thing I wanted to comment on, you were talking about mm. two-week half terms um, in the autumn term. Yes. And... Um, my background is I personally have never had a two-week half term. I started off my career working as a secondary school teacher. When I then um, went on leave because I had children, mm -hmm. I ended up working mostly in primary sector, both independent and state. I've never had a two-week half term. My partner, who's a teacher, has had um, in when he's been in the independent sector. Now, from my perspective, as someone who had young children, it would have been very, very difficult for me mm. if I'd had a two-week half term and, say, my children's school didn't because childcare would have been a nightmare. It would have been an absolute nightmare. Who? What would I do for that extra week? My husband, who did at some time have two-week half terms, and I always had one-week half term, um, that was great for him, um, but... Personally, I think the childcare is the issue that I feel is the barrier to it. If different schools in the same, I don't know, local authority have different half terms, it would make it really difficult for childcare and there'd have to be a joined up approach to the childcare. I know lots of teachers don't have children, but from my personal experience, childcare is the biggest problem if you're teaching full time um, or, or even part time and you don't have resources. And parents who are not teachers, Often in jobs, they cannot just take leave when they want it. They already are using up their maybe four or five weeks of annual leave to accommodate the school holidays, and they can't do it. So it's not that easy. And just interestingly, um, without going naming schools, my husband's school, which is an independent school, has actually switched to having a one-week half-term this year and instead of a two-week one and adding days onto other holidays instead. That's just an interesting factor. And what I found interesting in my career was there was one school which I worked at, which is a state school in London, and they actually have moved to having a two-week half-term. Now, 
it, it's interesting. It's I think teachers do need a break. That that term is a really long, hard term. Mm. But I think economically, thinking of all the different families and their situations, childcare is a really big mm. issue for parents. But then it, can I just throw this back at you from a perspective of uh, some teachers that might turn around and say, well, actually, do you know what? I think that teacher wellbeing and workload should be prioritised because without a happy and, uh, and relatively calm and rested teacher, surely education and the lessons that are provided will suffer if the teacher is burnt out. That's a fair point, yes. But if it was going to be a policy, if schools, I know academies already, they can decide what they do. I think it would very carefully have to be planned as in, well, what, you know, for that school, I think a head teacher thinking of doing that or a governing body would have to really find out their local community for their parents. Would that be possible or would it be putting a real burden on particular families? It might be fine for some um, areas, some not. But I also think with the teacher burnout, it's again looking at dressing at what is the problems for teachers? Why are there the league tables still? Why are they still having to have the national break. tests in primary schools? They shouldn't be happening this year. Mm -hmm. And whatever people might say, and there are so many expectations on schools now of what they are responsible for, mental health, well-being, as well as the academic. Those league tables, bottom line, and I've, last year I was a um, a teacher of a school, when the parents come through the door, they look at your last league table, your last test, and that can be the tipping point of whether they want to send their child to your school. So unfortunately, this is what needs to change. It needs to be these other things which are putting the pressure on the teachers mm -hmm. and how to make it better for teachers. Stop having um, demands on them, which are basically sometimes tick boxing data, uh, repeating sets of data and over and over, all of those things. Um, that's what needs to change. And possibly there could be some changing in the structure of the school year. Because I think some, I, I've often thought perhaps the summer holiday being so long is not the best thing. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> oh. <laughs> if you're going to have a two week half term, maybe then it would be maybe the summer one could be slightly shorter, you know? Uh -huh. Absolutely not. I require my <laughs> beach chair, I'm afraid. Uh, yes, but when no. we, we can argue yeah. over that one, Catherine. Yeah. I, I, I feel like I do understand what you're saying there, though. I think that there, there is an argument there for um, being able to potentially uh, look at the structure of the terms and actually what would work better in the 21st century for working parents, because obviously the family dynamics have changed since uh, the, the beginning of the uh, education system. You know, we've got people where both parents are now in uh, quite uh, heavy careers and uh, childcare is a major issue. I completely agree with you. But what, what I would like to ask you, uh, just out, out of interest, what would be your top two workload issues that you believe the government could deal with immediately? I think um, for this year in particular, just back off from the inspection regime and this whole judging because they are going straight into schools this mm. year. It doesn't seem to be that they're prioritising different things. And in fact, I think the layers have put on of what more they're going to be judging schools on, the recovery curriculum, how far have they caught up. It, it's that whole pressure from the centre, from the top down mm. and national exams getting away from this we haven't had exams now for because of the pandemic mm. has that really affected 
primary schools in particular. No, just the workload, it has to be less of this pressure to prove what you're doing. I do think, you, obviously, schools do need to be inspected. And I would be very worried if some schools were not looked at. Um, in my local area, uh, there are a particular school I'm thinking of who quite rightly have, um, they've had an inspection. There's things that have come to light which um, uh, wouldn't have done otherwise. Um, but at this time, right now, think of the staff in the school do not put unneeded pressures in terms of those inspections. If they want to be supportive, because they like to say they're supportive, make it generally supportive. And funding, I know that's a magic wand, but funding for those support staff and extra staff, if we want to really help those children who have been affected by the pandemic and have ongoing needs, and not just necessarily funding for schools, but the whole mental health provision, the CAMS, it's, it's, it's like there's, there's just not enough there. And that has an impact on the children as they walk through the door. It's so much that's going on out of school. But for teachers, take away this pressure of being judged and monitored all the time. Mm. It's just nonstop. I mean, the number of times that it's um, what progress have the children made and teachers having to measure it. And I've been in the position where I've had to be um, doing the performance management talks and setting targets and things. But a lot of that is because it's drip fed down from above and you have to show that you are making these changes. And honestly, sometimes the best schools are not the ones that necessarily are ticking the boxes mm -hmm. because they put the children first yeah and yeah. they maybe don't focus on all of the the data the forms doing everything and i think some teachers really now are being put off the profession because they aren't able to do what they really want to do which is to really teach those children well make it interesting engage the children mm -hmm. because of all the paperwork and the uh, i think the marking debate uh, possibly it's better now but the marking move away from this um, pressure on how you mark, what you mark, what colour pen. I would have hoped that that had gone out the window by now, but it hasn't still, clearly. Um, just so many schools have discussions around CPD, which is all about what do Ofsted want us to show? What do Ofsted want us to do? And that is, in state schools, what I've noticed recently, it's all about Ofsted, and it shouldn't be. It should be about your school community and what's best for your children and your staff as well. Mm. And that isn't just having cakes in the staff room. Some of us don't like cakes. It's actually genuinely what is best for all of these people who make the school community mm. to be happy and able to teach the children, as you said, if they're really exhausted, they can't teach. Yeah, they're not yeah. going to be performing. I, yeah, I, I I agree with you there in most of what you've said. I mean, I I, I have to say that I've had very good experiences in uh, in my time in education because I genuinely can say uh, through the many hats that I have worn uh, during my time since I started teaching that um, nothing that I have ever been asked to do has been a tick box exercise. Um, um, I, everything that I'm, I'm very lucky in terms of where I work because everything we do is genuinely only ever in the best interest of the students that we serve and the communities that we serve. And, uh, we, you know, we have been very, very much... Um, pioneering really in terms of uh, the marking policies that we follow the uh, the data systems that we use because actually what we realize is that it is the students needs first and engaging those students in their learning and that is how they make progress and I think that 
in terms of what the national picture should be with that is that uh, lots of schools could learn from each other. Um, and you are right, many schools from speaking to people on here, many, uh, looking on Twitter and everywhere else, there there seems to be a lot of tick boxing going on. Uh, so there could be some really great uh, opportunity for networking with schools that actually are able to work around all of this workload uh issue and really start to think about what's important and you're completely right there but Catherine while, while I've got you on the line I must ask you because this this is my next uh, my next segment now I am really really quite uh, interested because I did a, a show a couple of weeks ago where I was talking about uh, the uh, the official opposition and the shadow secretary of state for education that I do believe has been in the uh, the deep and dark shadows of the public eye for a very long time. Uh, I was interested to see that the uh, in Tes News that it was number two about uh, Labour's uh, policies on education if they were ever to win power ever again. Um, and uh, I was quite surprised cons considering uh, how non-existent they have really been recently. And uh, it is number two on people's most read today. But what what do you think? Are you uh, hopeful about Nadim Sahawi or are you more inclined to uh, listen to what the Labour Party have got to say? I'm not hopeful for the current Education Secretary because I think... All the words that have been said may be sounding, yes, I'm going to listen, I'm going to do the right thing, but I I might be cynical. I don't think much will change, really, because in the long term, there's got to be investment in education and listening to the professionals who actually work with children and work in schools and know what's happening. And the fact that over the last 18 months or, well, nearly two years since all of the pandemic happened, all of that if the leaders and the schools had been listened to, my goodness, there would have been solutions, you know, sooner. But it's, I don't think there's going to be a genuine listening to. All I would say is the only hope is if there's a government who genuinely does actually understand that there are huge um, differences between the opportunities and the economic situation for families, mm. that that's the hope that you need to have some people in power who actually do actually have that lived experience or and really understand the communities and aren't actually seeing things from the glow of... Um, you know, well, I've visited some schools. I know that some people need money, but, you know, if, if not realising that actually £80 a month makes a huge difference to families, for example, where if you've worked in schools, we all know there are many different families and it's not always the economic need, but there are so many different needs. And I just think I don't have... I don't believe that the current um, education secretary is going to make much difference. Mm. And it, that, that's, uh, it's, well, we will wait and see on that one. I mean, I, I was, I've just had to Google because uh, you were saying earlier that about uh, people always leading in the Department for Education with no educational experience. Now, what I, I was thinking, I'm sure Gavin Williamson's wife was a teacher. And I, <laughs> I, I had to Google it because I just could not remember. Um, and yes, she was a former primary school teacher. And uh, what is quite interesting to me is that he's clearly learned nothing from her. There we go, if you pardon the pun. Um, but it's quite, quite the shame, really, because I, I think actually um, it would be nice for people to be running the Department for Education that have actually got some experience in the classroom. Um, and potentially that would then uh, that might change things. 
but uh, that is something that potentially we are uh, going to be uh, waiting quite a long time for. But listen, Catherine, thank you so much for joining me this evening and I hope to be able to speak to you again. Thank you. Bye-bye. Have a nice weekend. Bye-bye. And you. Bye-bye. So uh, we've just been discussing there about the uh, two-week October half-term and uh, and potentially some of the changes and change to the structure of our half-terms and summer holidays. Now, I'm going to say absolutely quite clearly, I completely support the six-week summer holiday. I love the six-week summer holiday because it enables me to be able to spend time with my friends, my family, to go travelling, because there has got to be that work-life balance. We've got to think, okay, we're in school doing our things, supporting the students as much as we can while we're there, but then we have got to have that time to switch off. And my personal opinion on this uh, is that if we didn't have that summer holiday as teachers, I would wonder whether we would have the amount of teachers that we've got in the system currently for a very long time. However, uh, lots of us have got different views on that. And uh, quite frankly, everyone that knows me knows that I like to be sitting uh, on a uh, deck chair somewhere generally out of the country uh, for six weeks. Uh, well, I'm not there for six weeks. I am def definitely couldn't, uh, couldn't finance that one. But I mean, I would if I could. Uh, but... Um, that is it, isn't it? It's about having that work-life balance and it is about being able to enjoy those times off, to be able to spend time with your family to, and your friends, because that's time that you potentially won't ever get back. And we need to be really prioritising teachers' uh, wellbeing and workload because there is a retention crisis in this country. And I'm afraid that does come from the top, that does come from Her Majesty's government. So we they, they need to be listening to what we're saying. We are experts in our profession. Our school leaders are experts in leading their schools and therefore they need to be listened to. And uh, that might be something that uh, might happen at some point in the near future. Who knows? But anyway, I'll be back after the news. This is Teachers Talk Radio and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. This is your latest Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. In Scotland, from the 20th of September, all staff working in schools will be able to access a toolkit of LGBTQ plus inclusive teaching resources and will have to complete a basic awareness course. LGBTQ plus history and topics will now be taught and integrated into everyday learning, making Scotland the first country in the world to make this mandatory. John Swinney, Deputy First Minister, praised the changes when they were confirmed earlier in the year, saying, Scotland is already considered one of the most progressive countries in Europe for LGBTQ plus equality. Schools in Norfolk have been impacted by the ongoing fuel crisis with some fearing the return to online lessons. 
Some children who rely on special school transport arrangements have been unable to get to class. A Norfolk County Council spokesperson said, We are aware of a very few incidences where taxi drivers providing home to school transport have not been able to get fuel and are doing all we can to ensure that suitable transport remains in place. School buses have been unaffected so far, but there are 13,000 pupils in Norfolk who are eligible for funded transport to school. Former local head Jeff Barton, now General Secretary of the ASCL Head Teachers Union said, the last thing schools need is the added pressure of fuel shortages with the potential for this to mean that staff, pupils and suppliers are unable to get to school. Research conducted by SmartPurse has shown that despite financial education being included in the national curriculum since 2014, their children's financial literacy is still a concern for many parents. Guy Rigdon, CEO of MyBank, said barely a third of 7-17 to 17 year olds say they have received any form of money lessons. We cannot continue creating generations of young adults who don't know how to save or make informed decisions. For marginalised groups such as girls and young women, the margins are just too thin. It drives inequality and blights mental health. This has been your daily education news briefing. Yes, hello and welcome back to The Twilight Show with me, Charlie Brazell on Teachers Talk Radio. If you'd like to join in the conversation, you can, of course, tweet me at Mr. Raz Daz, or you can uh, obviously hashtag TT Radio, or you can send me a message here on the Podbean app. A very warm welcome to everyone listening. So I just want to turn my attention back to the Labour uh, Labour Party conference that is taking place at the moment, and the uh, the quite you know, lack really of uh, education policy coming from them. Um, I think personally, uh, you could uh, say that there is a bit of a lack of clarity from the current government, the Conservatives, and you've got a bit of a lack of clarity uh, from the Labour Party. And also really, it, what 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 has there been from the Liberal Democrats? There's been nothing uh, at all. Um, so really, what are they talking about? And I'm just going to go through some of this. And I, I again, I'm going to say it. they are the number two red article on Tez News. Now, are people really that interested in uh, waiting for what uh, Sir Keir Starmer's education uh, shadow secretary has got to say? Have we been waiting for a long time to hear what uh, what he's got to say? As he has been in the shadows for a very long time, uh, maybe they have found him in Narnia. Um, but uh, I was quite uh, quite surprised, really, um, on uh, on Wes Streeting's performance on uh, Question Time last night. The uh, the forthright manner in which he uh, puts himself forward in uh, considering he's had nothing to say really on education for quite a long time um, can you know 
complaining about the things that the government are doing um when actually i think anyone could be complaining about the things that the government are doing right now we're, we're not uh, inept at understanding what's going on uh but quite frankly I think that uh, the government themselves uh, might have a little bit of a fight on their hands uh, coming coming up anyway, because there's been an article in The Guardian today talking about uh, that the government are looking at removing um, limits on our teaching hours and bringing back SATs at the age of 14. Obviously, uh, the government have uh, said that that has not uh, been considered and it's uh, not something that's come out of number 10. Uh, but uh, that is something that I think that the teaching unions might want to get over, get uh, get all over right now. They might find themselves to be slightly more useful than they've been uh, in uh, many situations, uh, you know, considering all of the uh, stuff with the uh, coronavirus. They've not been listened to a lot of the time from the government. So maybe they might be listened to on this. Who knows? Uh, but uh, in terms of the... Uh, the Labour Party's conference, um, there's been nothing said said uh, or released really about teacher wellbeing. There's been nothing said by them about teacher workload, nothing about retention of teachers, nothing uh, really um, of substance. I mean, there's some good things that they've said on uh, the mental health of students, nothing about the mental health of staff, um, changes to offset to help struggling schools, no real obvious change in uh, the inspection uh, process other than to help struggling schools. Um, there needs to be more cash for teacher development, obviously, we'd all like to see that, but uh, the other side would probably argue, uh, where's that money going to come from? Um, and uh, what I'd like to know, are these the right priorities from the Labour Party? Uh, are these what are going to uh, win over the country in terms of education? Uh, quite frankly, I'm going to be completely unbiased here and I'm going to say that I think all of them are as useless as each other. I think lots of things that the uh, current government have done in education have been completely ridiculous. I think that the uh, some of the things that the Labour Party are calling for are completely ridiculous. And actually, we need to have a, a proper opposition to the government, a proper shadow education secretary that holds the government to account. Uh, but really, there has been nothing um, until this has been uh, spoken about uh, very recently at Labour Party's conference. Uh, so I would love to know really what your uh, views are on this. Um, I'm not somebody that really uh, that really has time for what lots of politicians have got to say, because I think that a lot of it is just windy rhetoric and uh, there's never any substance to what they've got to say. Uh, but uh, the when we're talking about the potential return of SATs at the age of 14, I mean, the last Labour government re removed them in 2008, which was, of course, the right thing to do, uh, because it, it is undue pressure on young people. We don't need SATs at the age of 14. And I think the government need to really, really think about that if they are uh, considering uh, this, because quite frankly, they... Uh, why do we need to constantly be testing? What is the point in pressurising our young people when they are going through a mental health crisis as it is? They need to really be considering the impact that all this testing is going to have on our young people. But frankly, what has really riled me is this uh, potential removal of our uh, limits to teaching hours. Great idea if you're trying to uh, retain teachers in the profession and uh, deal with workload issues. That's a really good idea. Uh, so I, if people are listening, I would really, really hope that you would be considering and maybe going back to the blackboard on this one, uh, because uh, what a ridiculous thing to do if that comes in. Um, but anyway.
we are uh, going to be really lucky because next week I have managed to secure Sir Roger Gale MP, the MP for North Thanet, uh, is going to be coming on and talking to us. Uh, I'm going to be discussing education policy with him. I'm going to be discussing uh, what he thinks that the government should be doing in terms of education and whether he believes uh, that the uh, Labour Party is offering up any form of opposition, really, um, to anything that the government is trying to do. Um, so that is what we will be discussing next week. And uh, I will hopefully be able to uh, get some other guests on as well for you. I've really enjoyed tonight because I've been able to discuss uh, education in America. I've been able to discuss half terms. I've been able to discuss uh, the uh, politicians and uh, some of the, uh, uh, the uh, you know, the things that the uh, what they're trying to do. Um, so I've just got a little uh, a little uh, message here. So yes, Charlie, the government are in a bit of a pickle, as you've said. But I would like to just say to everyone listening live that about LGBTQ. If you know anyone that is LGBTQ, please send them respect from me and many other people around the globe. So please make sure you are always showing compassion for strangers, no matter what they are. If they are disabled or LGBTQ or much more, be kind, show them love. Now, as somebody that is LGBTQ, uh, I am uh, identify as a uh, gay man. I don't identify, I'm sorry, I am a gay man. I refuse to identify because I'm not being labelled. Um, I am a gay man and I absolutely, completely agree with sending love, kindness and respect to everybody who at some point in their lives potentially has suffered from some form of discrimination, some form of non-love and uh, has needed some support in their lives. And that goes for anyone who is part of the LGBTQ community, the, uh, you know, anybody, absolutely anybody that deserves the love and support that we need in this world. And uh, that goes across the uh, spectrum there. So thank you for that comment. Um, yes. I've loved tonight. I've loved speaking to you once again. I hope that you have enjoyed my show and uh, you would be uh, interested in joining me next week, of course, for when we speak to Sir Roger Gale MP, uh, the Conservative MP for the North Thanet constituency. Have a lovely weekend. Rest up well and make sure that you continue listening to The Late Show here on Teachers Talk Radio. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.